I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. And this week we have a bit of more topical podcast for you. We're talking about the National Conservatism Conference, which has taken place this week, just a stone's throw from CapEx Towers in the heart of Westminster, a really large and broad array of speakers. Several of my colleagues have been along to the conference to check it out and see some cabinet ministers speak, some journalists, some historians, as I say, a very wide cast. So we're going to get into the weeds of what national conservatism is, whether it has a future in the UK, and what the kind of key points we've drawn out from this week's conference. With us, as so often, is my deputy, Alice Denby. Hello, Alice. Hello. And our colleague from the Centre for Policy Studies, our Deputy Research Director, Carl Williams. Carl, welcome and congratulations on your recent promotion. Carl has done a lot of work in particular on immigration and the forecasts for the kind of numbers we're going to see in, in the coming years. We've had a lot of press about Carl's work on that, so we'll talk a bit about that, particularly given the speech that Suella Braveman, the Home Secretary, made on this very topic. So... I think we should just kick off with that because this was the first real kind of headline grabber of the week. Suella Braverman made this big speech about how we need to kind of train up more workers and not rely too much on immigration, which has obviously been more of the kind of economic model over the last 10, 20 years. Carl, what do you think is going on here? She picked out three professions, which are quite distinct. So lorry drivers, butchers and fruit pickers. I mean, what's the background for a start? What level is immigration running at at the moment? And is it the same kind of immigration we saw, say, 10 years ago when it was lots from Eastern Europe and so on? Yeah. So next week, we're going to find out the net migration figures for 2022. Uh, we know that in the, the 12 months to June 22, net migration was up over half a million. It's likely to be about 700,000 to a million for the full year. Put that in some context, that would be more than twice the pre-Brexit high. That could be almost three times as much. Partly, obviously, there's Ukrainian refugees, people coming over from Hong Kong. But even taking those people out of the overall figures, the underlying numbers are up massively. This is being driven by a mixture of students and workers. It's interesting that Suella picked up on those particular professions, because these are often seen as shortage occupation areas. But a lot of the people coming in under work visas now are not actually going to these areas. So that's why we're still seeing very high vacancy rates across the economy. You mentioned that the estimate was 700,000 to a million. There's a very, there's a lot of kind of scope there. There's a quite a wide 
range. How do you account for that? So we have a good idea of the incomers just based on home office visa data. And five years ago, three years ago, we wouldn't have been able to work this out because of EU freedom of movement rules meant that a lot of people coming here didn't have visas. So we know who's come in. What we don't know yet is how many people left because net migration obviously is a function of immigration minus emigration. So we've arrived at the 700,000 to a million range based on a set of reasonable assumptions about how many people might be leaving, looking at historical trends, looking at visa extensions. Um, so obviously there is a lot of uncertainty around this still, as with all sorts of forecasts, but I think that range is where we are. Yeah. And what kind of countries? I believe India is one of the largest and Nigeria, India, places like that. Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Philippines, developing countries outside of the EU. And in fact, net migration from the EU is almost unchanged on last year. It's up by a few thousand people, whereas from places like Nigeria and India, it's up by over 100,000. Now, Alice, what do you make of this idea from Suella Braveman that we ought to be kind of training up people in certain sectors? It strikes me that we've kind of already seen this with HGVs where wages have gone up and they are trying to recruit more people from the UK. But it strikes me that fruit picking in particular is quite a different set of circumstances. It strikes me as quite a job that farmers and people in agriculture often say they just cannot get British people who want to do it. Yeah, I mean, any farmer would tell you that they've tried to recruit people but British people just won't do these jobs. I think partly it's because you need to go and live on the farm usually. And because it's seasonal, you know, British people need permanent long-term employment. Seasonal work just isn't really suited to British people. And leave aside the fact that it's very back-breaking, physically demanding work. And I think any farmer you'd speak to would say that these are temporary visas. They shouldn't really be included in migration figures. These are people who come and go. Yeah. And I think that the seasonal agricultural workers scheme is something that farmers want to see expanded, not reduced. What, uh, Carl, what do we think about the kind of politics of this? Because it strikes me that if you asked most voters and you said, do you think people ought to be able to come here for a few months for a specific job? They would probably say, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just to come in on that point, I think the, the fruit pickers is a bit of a red herring in this context because those numbers are not in the net migration figure. That's temporary movement. So even if you've got that down to zero, that would not change the numbers everyone's talking about. Or maybe it's just seen as an easy target of somewhere where you can get the numbers down. Maybe it's because it's when people think migration, if they're not thinking small boats, they might be thinking those sorts of jobs. I do think people just have the wrong impression of that job in particular. I remember speaking to sort of older people and they say, well, in my day, you know, students would do it in their holidays. And I think it's just a very different kind of labor. It's really, really hard work. It's, you know, it's, it's skilled. It's not just something that you could do for a summer. And I think that's what I think people just have the wrong impression. I think people just don't understand agriculture. Yeah, I mean, there's a broader point here as well around how we developed an economic model where labor has substituted for investment in machinery and technology over the past couple of decades. And you could argue that agriculture needs to become more productive by investing in drones is a really good example, ways of improving output, getting times down for harvests. Um, so you could make the argument that if we don't have some sort of cap on migration figures, that investment's not going to happen. And that's going to be a drag on productivity growth. Yeah, it's a bit of a strange one in sort of pure retail politics as well, because you have the Home Secretary here seemingly inveigling against a situation that her own government, her own party has presided over. But yeah. I mean, what do we make of this? It seems there's a sort of noises off element to it. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's a, a function of, of the entire conference. I mean, Suella's speech, leaving aside the details, felt like a leadership pitch. 
um, from inside of government. And the whole conference has this sense of a kind of internal battle for the kind of soul of the Conservative Party. Perhaps we can get into this a bit later about whether we think that national conservatism is a, a version of that ideology that's going to win. But yeah, as I say, the whole thing felt a bit like a platform for various cabinet ministers or backbenchers to launch their own pitches. I think you're right on that. And I think on the migration front in particular, it feels like it was a battle that was going on behind closed doors and it's kind of spilled into the open at the conference. It's interesting, though, because up until this point, we spent a long time talking about legal migration and obviously a big thing in the run up to the referendum. We had this very illusory tens of thousands per year pledge that was never met, it would never get anywhere near it under David Cameron. Then in the last year or two, we've basically been talking about sort of stopping the boats and the channel all the time. I mean, do we think this is going to, the fact that this is now, she's made this speech is going to kind of bring this issue of net migration more to the forefront? Because it's not really part of Rishi Sunak's kind of missions at the moment to bring that figure down. Stop the boats is the big thing rather than legal. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting the way legal migration has disappeared from the agenda until relatively recently. And I think that's partly because we've not yet had a full year's figures since the new system came in that hasn't been interrupted by COVID. And obviously that threw everything into confusion. So we're known as for sure whether that was, how much of that was a temporary flux, how much of that was a permanent change. And this will be a much better indication of that. Your point there, I think it is going to be a bigger item on the agenda. And it's, I don't know, it'll be almost kind of a, a sixth pledge, like yeah. implicitly, but there's a risk it becomes that. And you can already see ways that he's going to struggle to meet his other five pledges. I feel like there was a promise that um, once we'd taken back control, that, that what people cared about was having control of migration and not the headline numbers. But I think perhaps we need to revisit some of those assumptions. I'm fairly relaxed about migration compared to a lot of people on what you might call the right. But I think the meta problem here is that there's a complete collapse in trust in politicians mm. to actually execute their promises. Whatever your views on migration, if you've said year after year after year, we're going to get the numbers down and then they keep going up, or if you voted for Brexit thinking this is going to mean, A, yes, control, but also, frankly, lower numbers, it's a democratic problem as well as a policy one. Yeah, I mean, agreed. I think the 2019 Conservative Manifesto said overall numbers will come down. And every government since sort of 1997 has promised numbers will come down. And this is one of those factors that, as you say, has eroded the legitimacy of the political process almost. How does it interact with forecasting? Because, Carl, you've written a few pieces for us about the role of forecasting in public policy. And one thing that came across around the time of the budget was that the OBR were basically making some quite heroic assumptions about how these numbers would feed into growth over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too technical here. Basically, at the back end of the forecast period for GDP growth, growth rates crater unless you can find a way to pump that up. And the way you pump it up within the context of the OBR spreadsheets and the budget is to add in a bit of migration. You say every 100,000 migrants equals X percentage of GDP growth. And therefore, you can say under these assumptions, we're going to meet our obligations on public debt ratio in the long term. It's one of those lovely ways where you can find levers to pull in a model to get an outcome that is convenient, even if it's not perhaps terribly realistic. Yeah, I think some people describe forecasting as like a sausage machine. You can kind of put in whatever ingredients you like and come out with the final product you're after. But Alice, you went to a conference 
a couple of times for a few of the sort of sessions, if you like. There was an enormous range of people, as I said. I mean, we had cabinet ministers, but we also had lots of journalists. We had people kind of zoom in. We had J.D. Vance, who's a senator from the sort of Trump-ish wing of the Republican Party. He wrote a book called Hillbilly Energy, which was very famous in the US about the kind of struggles of the white working class in kind of Rust Belt America. What themes did you detect at the conference? And how do you think they feed into kind of retail politics for the Conservative Party? National conservatism is a kind of American-Israeli movement. It's quite associated with Donald Trump, as you say. And it's been brought to Britain and sort of a lot of conservative politicians were there, but it's not something that's come from the Conservative Party. And I think it's fair to say that there was quite a lot of focus on Christianity and history. I think for me, I found it quite surprising how overtly religious it felt. That's quite unusual in, in it, politics. It took place in a kind of Christian centre. The Emmanuel, Emmanuel Centre, yeah. yeah. So it's a very kind of ecclesiastical venue with kind of signs, uh, you know, boards saying, you know, God is with us. So that felt unusual for something in British politics. I feel like that'd be less unusual in America. And so, yeah, so themes of uh, Christian values, the idea of a loss of heritage, basically what you might broadly call quite anti-woke, pro-natalism, so a lot about encouraging women to have babies. It, it really did feel like everyone there was just telling me to get on and reproduce. The other key strand maybe was the importance of the nation state over yeah. globalist or internationalist institutions and organisations. Yeah, I feel like from a CapEx perspective, there was, seemed to be a deep confusion over whether or not this was a very protectionist movement or whether it was pro-free trade. So when I went, we had the first speech from um, Yoram Hazoni, which was, you know, he specifically said, we need to be protectionist. And people in the audience kind of stood up and clapped. And then he was followed by Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's obviously a massive pro-free trade version of Brexit. So I feel like there's a lot of confusion and conflicting ideas within national conservatism. And as I said, it felt like this was part of a battle of ideas that's happening inside the Conservative Party for what it really stands for. And if we're going to be honest, I feel like being anti-woke isn't really an election winning platform. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
Yeah, I talked about this on last week's podcast with David Frost, Lord Frost. I think the kind of conclusion we came to is that you can be anti-woke. Certainly there are votes in it, but it shouldn't be like the first thing on your platform, especially when economic issues are are so important. Obviously, it depends how you construe that. If you lump lots and lots of things into the anti-woke bucket, if you think any talk about immigration is also anti-woke, you know, then it becomes a bit more muddled. But in terms of national conservatism, I agree with much of what Alice said, but it, it strikes me that it mirrors just conservatism in general. It's such a broad church. I mean, you have everyone from you know, the ultra-free trader liberals to, I don't know, more kind of Scrutonian conservatives who are more into kind of cultural issues. I mean, Carl, do you think that there is actually a kind of ideology here? Could we elucidate in a few bullet points what national conservatives actually believe? Or is it more of a reaction against things they don't like? I think it's more of the latter. It's more of a reaction. Part of the dynamics of this is that national conservatism is now seen as the new big thing. So everyone's trying to claim that label and say it means this or it means this, because it has some sort of normative power at the moment. And maybe that will pass in time and we'll just find another label. Yeah, as Alice was saying, there's, there's lots of sort of inchoate strands to this. And it's you know, always good to pay attention to other intellectual traditions and contexts and see what we can pick from them. But we have to recognise what's not really applicable or useful here. I think one of the interesting things about this conference, anyone who's been to Conservative Party Conference, uh, would imagine that it would be very kind of old and very white and the sort of things that you people you imagine who like to sit around and talk about conservative policy. It wasn't like that at all. It was a very young audience. It was pretty diverse. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And it's really interesting. A lot of the frustration and the radicalism seems to be coming from younger people. Mm. And it's the one sense of, you know, 13 years of Tory government, what have we got to show for it? And it's not just the material things like, you know, you can't get out of the housing market, the rental market's broken. It's also the sense that major pieces of new Labour legislation is still on the statute books. Mm. There's been no response to this. And we have a, a kind of a, a government which is basically sort of 2010 generation of Tories in the Cameroon image. It's starting to feel a bit stale now. And I think younger people in particular who don't remember those years and have come to political maturity since Brexit have a very different view of things. And do we think that perhaps part of that is because they've been through an education system that is quite different from... So I went to uni in sort of the noughties, so 2005 to nine. It was very apolitical. The only protest I remember was a bunch of history students protesting that they didn't get enough contact hours. It tells you something. Um, but I'm loath to sort of read too much in sort of tabloid stories about kind of woke this or that, but it does seem that there's a lot more of a kind of basically illiberal atmosphere on campus that a lot of young people have gone through that system and they see something that they really don't like there. I think you definitely got a sense from the younger people in the audience of a deep frustration with the idea of a, a sense of a takeover of the institutions. Conservative ideas or being proud of your history and your traditions was something to be ashamed of, something that made them unusual in their social circle. That kind of, you might broadly call it, anti-work is such a rubbish term, <laughs> but that strand of national conservatism seems to come from a frustration of, as I say, the increasing takeover of institutions by a left-wing ideology. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's such a social cost sometimes to being a conservative in this atmosphere. Those people who are prepared to say they are really are kind of forced to double down on that. And that kind of drives the, I don't want to use the word radicalization because that makes them sound like extremists, but it does mean they get very, very politically interested and very sort of... Polarisation is probably, Polarized is probably yeah. the best word, yeah. I know what you mean. I think there's definitely contexts in which, 
And there are a lot of people on the right, I think, who definitely tone down what they think in certain contexts because they just know. I mean, let's say, frankly, in London especially, if you are a conservative, you are likely to be in a minority in a given social context unless it's an explicitly political gathering. And that actually, in turn, I think it becomes a bit of a snowball where you just don't hear those views in lots of contexts. So it becomes, maybe this is a particularly London thing because it's become a much more Labour city. It might also explain why there were so many young people at the conference. You know, this is a chance for them to go and meet like-minded people, which if they're a student on the campus, they might only know a handful of people like that. It's also interesting how kind of the production values and the kind of quality presentation of the thing was really impressive. There's a lot of money sloshing about, yeah. I think it's worth saying what this wasn't. This definitely wasn't a kind of radical or far right uh, conference or whatever. Fascists. Yeah, whatever the Extinction Rebellion protesters that plagued the doors would cast it as. It was kind of quite philosophical talks about our constitutional history, as well as, you know, cabinet ministers standing up. But yeah, so there is a lot of money in this. And it does come from America and from Israel and from Hungary. So just worth bearing that in mind, if conservatives are thinking that this is a kind of a way forward for them, it's worth thinking about whose interests it might serve. Oh, yeah, that brings us to a really important point, which is how much will this intellectual ferment, if you like, actually feed into retail politics? Do we think this kind of thing will have much influence on the direction of the Conservative Party between now and 2024. It strikes me that Rishi Sunak has kind of set out his stall. He's betting on inflation coming down, the economic news looking a bit better, people not being really sold on Keir Starmer. It's a bit of a Hail Mary, but it seems like there's very little room for him to work with here. Yeah, I think you're right. This feels more like the debate you'd expect to be having after general election when you're in opposition. And we just seem to have brought that forward 18 months. But you, you can see this elsewhere in, in kind of the right-wing intellectual think tanks and comment pieces and so on. A lot of people now assuming the next election is going to be lost. So what should conservatism look like for the rest of the decade? Yeah. Do we think, I mean, there's an interesting piece by Steve Davis, a historian who works at the Institute of Economic Affairs. And his argument was basically that you've kind of got these blocks of voters. You can either be anti-woke and sort of protectionist, or you can be liberal on social matters and economic matters. He draws quite a sort of straight distinction there. I mean, do we think that's true? I don't see why you can't be free market and relatively culturally conservative. Like, I mean, Thatcher is the obvious example, but I mean, what do we think about that? Do we think that the Tories have to go, you know, left on economics at the same time as being right on culture? I don't think so. And I I think that is a overly sort of simplistic framework for thinking about this. I mean, central policy studies, we've had a report done by James Frain of Public First, uh, the new majority, looking at the Tory coalition that you know, voted Boris to power in 2019. And clearly part of that is, I mean, I'd be cautious about using the word woke in this context, because it can mean everything and nothing these days. But there is clearly that sort of priding culture and British traditions and institutions which, yes, that can unite people across the right, even if they have very different views on economics. And actually, that should be one of the sort of linchpins that holds the, the electoral coalition together. Yeah, it's interesting that Keir Starmer has clearly realised this because barely a speech goes by without a union jack in the background <laughs> for him. And he, I think he's doing it for two reasons. One is to kind of neutralise that whole element, but also because it really annoys all the kind of Corbynites. And a big part of his pitch is being like, I'm not like them. 
And Alice, what do you think about this? Do you think for us on what you broadly call the free market, right? Obviously, the trust quarting kind of fiasco is a big blow. I mean, there's mm. no, no avoiding that fact. But it just strikes me that protectionist policies don't work. There's no good argument for like really high tariffs and, you know, autarky and these kinds of things. I mean, there might be a kind of electoral sugar rush, but is there really a future for the Conservative Party having a labourish economic perspective? The only thing that matters to voters and what is going to be you know, in their minds at the next election is whether or not they are poorer than they were before. And they clearly are. The government needs to do whatever it can, whoever that government is, to grow the economy and to you know, to improve people's living standards. And, and as we at the Centre for Policy Studies and at CapEx believe, the best way to do that is through free trade and free markets and allowing businesses to do what they want. And I think cultural questions are just a kind of side note to that, frankly. And I would also say that the sort of reactionary nature of national conservatism, like some of the speakers kind of talking about the idea that people are telling them that they should be ashamed of their country and that there's this great loss of national pride. I just don't buy it. We had the coronation a couple of weeks ago and there was a palpable sense of national pride in a quiet, unassuming British way. So I just think that on those kind of cultural issues, national conservatism is a dead end. Is it a fair criticism, Carl, that economics is a bit of an afterthought in the national conservatism movement so far? And what we have heard has tended to be of the kind of protectionist, Trumpish variety. I think it's, it's the area where there's the, the most contradiction. I think most people there can agree on sort of the cultural side of things. That's not really where the disagreements are. It is that battle between protectionism and industrial strategy and free trade and what should we do to respond to other countries taking similar steps. And that's where a lot of the heat in the debate is going to be over the next few years, I think. I think that's also slightly a function of this being an American movement. I mean, massive industrial subsidies and so on kind of make more sense in America. It's just a richer country. It's more of a global player than we are. So there are just different economic arguments. And I don't think we should import American ideas. Yeah, I think that's a good point. That like American economic policy is often kind of a tool of geopolitics as much mm. as it is about the domestic economy. Guys, thank you very much indeed for joining us. We'll wrap it up there. I mean, we could be here all day talking about these many, many issues. Such was the breadth of this, uh, of this conference. It's notable that we're, you know, 13 years into a government. We're still having these kind of raging debates of the questions that will probably, you know, never be settled once and for all. Thank you all at home as ever for tuning in. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do tell your friends, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and do tune in next Friday for another episode of the CapEx podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.